This is George Lucas, and I'm the writer-director of Star Wars. I made this film a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And I'm Ben Burt, creator of Robot and Creature Voices. And this is Carrie Fisher. And I'm Dennis Murat, visual effects supervisor on Star Wars. And on the original Star Wars here, I was credited as second cameraman. Points is Jason and Escape. It's 44 years of that little movie, The Star Wars, A New Hope, the one that started it all, the one that started it all for us, the original, original. Next to The Phantom Menace, it's probably one of the weirdest movies ever made. And maybe that's one of the reasons why we love it so much, why we love episode four, sometimes known as Star Wars, sometimes known as A New Hope. It's like you were reading my mind, because I was just going to say probably the weirdest movie ever to be so popular and so beloved. (laughs) Well, and that's kind of what we're going to be getting into with this week's episode. Because, yeah, we're we're celebrating the 44th anniversary of episode four, the triple four, 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 four. And it's also a sequel to our episode number 245, where we did the the Last Jedi commentary commentary, where we talked all about Ryan Johnson's commentary for The Last Jedi. And in this episode, yeah, we are talking about the 2004, continuing the theme of fours, DVD commentary for episode four, for the 44th anniversary of episode four. That's what this episode is for? <laughs> that's, what, that's what we are here for. We've talked about it so many times in the past, but it's it's something that I feel like gets overshadowed with A New Hope, where people talk about, yes, it's it's unbelievable success. It changed Hollywood. It changed the way movies were made. It changed the way movies were marketed. It changed the way people thought about movies. It was such a game changer in, on every level. But yeah, I feel like sometimes just the strangeness of it is forgotten and just what an amazing powerful electric exciting movie just that one little slice of two hours is for a movie that's celebrated as much as a new hope is i still feel like weirdly it gets wrapped up in all the other star wars stuff and it's just it's not recognized enough for just how incredible it is well, there's been so much other stuff over the last 44 years that have sprouted up around it that it's easy to get yeah, to forget just how much of a of a gem the original is and that it is really a standalone story that works on its own and if there was never another Star Wars thing, we would probably still be talking about this incredible movie from 40 years ago. It would have been hard to fill 200 episodes of a podcast, maybe. <laughs> I think we could. I think we can still do it. I do. But yeah, we probably still could pull off just talking about A New Hope for every week for five years and it would be fine. It's like when I think about 
a new hope. It, it always goes hand in hand where, and I'll, I'll keep it brief because I, I've said it like 75 times on, on episodes before, but in the early 2000s, I went to a screening of A New Hope on the campus of the University of Michigan. And when it started and when the crawl went up, the first thing, it didn't say episode four. So I was like, oh boy, we're watching a real crazy one. And I, there was the first time I noticed all the, the audio changes and everything. But aside from all of that, just sitting in a theater and watching just this movie in a small little theater on film, I walked out of that little screening room just feeling like energized. Like I just drank like <laughs> all the coffee in the world because that's like the power of this movie and especially seeing it on the, on a big screen and seeing it with other people. It's just, it just leaves you feeling like energized and like euphoric and you forget that that was kind of what it did to audiences back in summer 77. That's why the movie was a phenomenon aside from all the other stuff, like we said, like the groundbreaking special effects and everything else that went along with it. People just left that theater just buzzing with excitement because that's just that movie. Yeah, it's just a fun time from beginning to end. It's just you're having fun and you get out and you, yeah, you want to get back in line and and get on the ride again. Yeah, and this commentary that we're going to be talking about kind of goes over a lot of the those reasons why, yeah, it is like, like you said, like you want to go on it again, like it's a thrill ride. This went by so fast, I feel like I missed something. I've got to watch it again because I don't, I don't even believe what I just saw with my own eyes. I have to witness it again. Well, and the 2004 DVDs were really special too because it was the first time the original trilogy films were on DVD. And this was like DVDs had been out for a long time. And they were finally putting the Star Wars movies on DVD. And there was brand new commentary tracks for all three movies. And we were in the middle of the prequel trilogy. I think attack of the clones had been out for two years now, and we were getting close to revenge of the Sith coming out. And there was just prequel fever was at an all time high. And these DVDs came out and they were just packed full of goodies. There was an empire of dreams documentary, but one of the best parts, yeah, was just digging into these movies and listening to these commentary tracks and, and just hoping to find some some secret nuggets of new information about these movies. Because, yeah, it's easy to forget that the, the Phantom Menace DVD came out in 2001. It came out two years after the Phantom Menace was in theaters, like kind of closer to Attack of the Clones coming out. And the Phantom Menace DVD was my first experience with a George Lucas audio commentary because there was the Laserdisc Definitive Collection in 1993 that had a commentary with Lucas, Ben Burt, Dennis Murin, Ken Ralston, Ralph McQuarrie, Frank Oz, and others. But it's it's kind of weird, right? Like it's just patched together from like vintage interviews and it's not really like – they sat someone down with a microphone and made them watch the movie for like, or like a real audio commentary. Right. Like it's not like they're actually anyone's watching the movie and, and, and talking about it while they're watching it as much as it is just careful editing of, of pre-existing stuff. Well, and just the fact too, that this was George Lucas in full on big picture star Wars mode. Cause he had just finished the first two prequel movies and now he's going back and talking about the original three, while he's working on the final film, which is really the third film. And it's just, it was just a really exciting time to be getting all this new information. And the 2004 DVDs were a surprise to everyone too, that they were, there was a special editions part two. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah. it was more like what they changed more stuff. You're joking, right? And, right. We we weren't used to it at that point. It was a full decade before <laughs> McClunky. So we, <laughs> it was a really big deal, these DVDs. And yeah, the commentaries were like, was well, this commentaries for all three? Like new commentaries with George Lucas talking about them now? 
I've lost my mind. I remember these DVDs freaking out. I went to Best Buy like as soon as it opened. They had like a DV- Star Wars on DVD T-shirt that I think was like thirty-five dollars or something. I was like, I got give me one of those too. Just what else you got? Well, yeah, because we we had um, my wife and I had just been in Thailand for two weeks, and we literally flew back, got back the day the DVDs came. out. Out and like on our way home from the airport, I was like, "We got to go to Best Buy. I got to get the DVDs, <laughs> and I'm just gonna lay in bed for two days and watch these DVDs." And I did. It was it was wonderful. That's what you got to do. <laughs> this commentary we're gonna be talking about, though, it's yeah, it's so good because it's it's George Lucas, it's Ben Burt, it's Dennis Murin, and for the wild card factor, it's Carrie Fisher offering like I think what they call in sports color commentary. It's it's extra sad but extra wonderful just to hear her voice cuz it is. It, she puts the color with a capital C commentary for Carrie. You know, everyone is just living up to true form. George Lucas either sounds like he's about to fall asleep or he's borderline getting mad about something <laughs> or he's just making like really sly sense of humor jokes or something. It starts out where he's kind of like, oh, I'm over it. and then later he gets real worked up and yeah, we're going to be going into all of it. And these DVD commentaries were the same carried over for the Blu-rays. Sadly, they're not on Disney Plus. I think the only commentaries that are currently on the Disney Plus extras are The Last Jedi, even though that seems to be come and go often. But I think the Force Awakens commentary is still on there. It's weird. But it would be great if these were on there, too, if the original trilogy and the prequel ones, too. There's amazing commentaries just across the board for Star Wars movies. Yeah, I think that half the fun of these is maybe it would be better if it was just all George Lucas from start to finish, but it is fun the way they do it where they they cut back and forth between the different people. And because of that, whenever George comes on, you're like, oh, oh, quiet. I got to pay attention here. It's it's the it's the important parts. <laughs> maybe something <laughs> something crazy could happen at any minute. We we don't know what he's going to say. Well, and, and, you know, and at the time with these, I, I was convinced in, in all the commentary tracks, it's like, he's going to say something about episode three. I'm going to find out something about Revenge of the Sith. I got to pay extra close attention to all these commentaries. <laughs> There's going to be clues in here. He never does. No. Never. I'm not done writing the script. I don't even know, folks. Yeah. Your guess is as good as mine. I don't know. The, the only way he can't spoil anything is he just makes sure he hasn't written it yet. <laughs> legendary adventure of the past could be as exciting as Star Wars. Here they come. The more you see it, That's where the, fun begins. the better it gets. Too fast. Star Wars rated PG starts tomorrow at a theater near you. So let's start digging in to the commentary, to some of the highlights, some of the chunky bits. One we had right away in the beginning is George Lucas, and he's talking about the droids in the beginning of the movie. Kind of the stuff like he had in the original first version of Star Wars. And we learned that George likes it weird. No surprise. (laughs) And... His filmmaking friends who he was hanging out with those days weren't so big on making it weird. And they were trying to convince him that you can't start the movie with just two droids and have the first half hour of the movie with no human characters in it, just the droids. But Lucas wasn't hearing any of it and he loved it too much. He had to do it. And I really wanted to have the film be led by the droids. And when some friends of mine read the screenplay, they were adamant that I not do that. They thought 
my first film, THX, was a little too esoteric, and they thought making a film where in the first 20 minutes you're dealing primarily with just the droids would not work. But I loved the idea, and even though I shot those sequences, which were about Luke and setting up Luke at the very beginning of the movie and that sort of thing, I never liked it, and I never wanted it in the movie, so I basically kept it the way I originally wrote it. The first cut of the film had the intercuts of Luke on the planet with what was going on in space, but it just wasn't the movie I wanted to make. I mean, I wanted to make it about this kind of odd couple and tell the story from their point of view. And the film was kind of shot from their point of view, so, you know, I, I was sort of amused by that. At, at the time, it was a very bold idea, again, to have the first half hour be mainly about robots. The only real human character in the first 20 minutes of the movie is Princess Leia. I've got to rest before well, I, I think that's kind of like what we were talking about, that it is one of the weirdest movies ever made. <laughs> it's really, like, when you you really think about it, it's really strange. And, yeah, it's... It's like all of Star Wars. If you described it to someone who had never heard of it, they'd be like, and this movie's really popular. <laughs> but, you know, in in the, in the best of Lucas being weird is it's like, it's not weird out of thin air. It's weird with the purpose. And it's it's all from his influences and his being a fan of, of Kurosawa movies and specifically Hidden Fortress and how that movie has the the point of view of the, the two kind of lowliest characters and he took that idea up to space and replaced them with the two lowliest characters that you could have in the Star Wars universe, which is just two dirty old droids. If you look at THX and then American Graffiti, and then you think about Star Wars being like a middle ground in between those two movies, it, like it really kind of is. And with the Luke scenes in there with Luke and Biggs and Cammy and Fixer and all that, it's much more American graffiti. It's got like a American graffiti kind of tone and vibe to it. It's like American graffiti in space, but taking all that Luke stuff out, it's, it is a bit more THX. It's a bit more abstract. And like what he says about uh, THX, that it's meant to be a philosophical film, <laughs> an abstract philosophical essay on what things mean and life and choice and stuff but it's also two robots bickering in a desert but it is interesting you know thinking back how much the beginning of this movie really is yeah thx because you know visually when you're on the the blockade runner with leia and the walls it's all white and vader's almost like the cops the the one robot in the in the hallway with them we don't even know if the stormtroopers are people too at that point true right so it's yeah it's basically thx in a spaceship and then when you get to tatooine it is kind of like the white void scene from thx with just people wandering around speaking about philosophy it just happens to be these two droids arguing instead and it's you know and it works it's almost like just when you can't handle the weird anymore, the movie gets flips back to the fun of American graffiti. And that jumping back and forth is what just keeps you on the edge of your seat and keeps you from maybe losing your mind when it gets a little too weird. Well, and Lucas's commentary kind of goes from there. Yeah. Where he is talking about how a lot of this style of specific weirdness in A New Hope was very much influenced by Akira Kurosawa's films. And he talks about how he really liked how those films threw you into an environment with very little explanation. My introduction to Kurosawa's films were very powerful because it happened in film school. And I knew very little about Japanese history at that point. And when I would get thrown into something like Seven Samurai or Jimbo or Ikuro or any of the movies, it was like I had no idea what was going on. I mean, I could follow the human story, but the culture was completely complex and oblique. And I liked that. I liked that feeling of being thrown into an environment, you know, trying to get my bearings and still be able to tell a story in that environment that made sense, that you weren't so confused that you just couldn't follow it. And in terms of fantasy films and everything, I can't stand it when you sit around and try to explain how a teleporter works or why. You know, it's just not what the movie needs to be about. If you think about watching, like, especially Kurosawa films, 
you are, you're thrown into this culture that maybe you know nothing about. Samurai age Japan. They're saying words. You don't know what they mean. You're seeing traditions and customs you don't know about. And they don't stop and explain it all to you and tell you what it is. And that very much is Star Wars and especially this movie. Well, in keeping with just being strange, next off we get a little bit from the wonderful Ben Burt talking about creating the sounds for R2-D2 and just how much trouble it was to to kind of crack that and figure out what the voice is. And of course he brings up how George Lucas thought maybe they should record real babies before they could talk as, as the basis for sounds for R2-D2. R2 was described in the script as beeping and buzzing and whistling. The script did not prescribe the specific lines of dialogue that he, that he had, but merely said that R2 responded or R2 beeped or something of that sort. And it was left up to me to try to come up with possibilities for George Lucas to listen to. George at one point thought that perhaps even recording babies before they could talk, the sounds that babies make cooing and sighing and little vocalizations they make as they learn to talk might be the key to R2's voice. And it was definitely the right direction to go because R2 is, well, kind of an ornery child. He's smart, but he's also has a certain innocence about him. He can be insubordinate, but overall he's lovable. And as the film was being developed and being cut in the editing room, I would try out different R2 voices and then get uh, an assessment from George as to what he thought. And time and time again, he wasn't satisfied with what I was doing and that uh, we really needed the voice to have more character to it. One day when uh, George and I were discussing the voice, we both found ourselves imitating, making little funny noises as we kind of describe what R2 might be like. And it uh, dawned on us that, well, maybe the very noises that we were making, the little cute vocalizations that we were using as kind of a means of symbolically manufacturing R2's voice, well, maybe that would lead us in the right direction. When are we getting on Disney Plus Burt Babies? <laughs> did, and how far did this, did this initiative go of recording babies? Was, was it, did it ever... I mean, we know... His baby daughter is the sound of what the sea monster in Phantom Menace. Sando Aqua Monster is, yeah, is Ben Burt's daughter. So he didn't forget about this. But yeah, I mean, like, was he on his way to the hospital to just sneak in and record babies? And he decided it wasn't a good idea. I don't know. I really want to hear R2-D2 with just like a robot baby voice. Like the, the coos and sighs. <laughs> well, and I think that, yeah, that's what's so wonderful is like, they had this crazy idea, maybe we should record real babies, but then ultimately it's just George Lucas and Ben Burt talking to each other in baby voices and then realizing, well, shoot, let's just record ourselves making baby sounds and, you know, movie magic happened. And now, you know, 44 years later, everybody loves this robot that has robot baby talk. So that leads us to our next one where George Lucas is talking about the pace of the film and people couldn't handle it in 1977 too much information too fast it's like it was the death of cinema <laughs> too fast the, the interesting thing about this film was when it was first released people felt it moved very 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 fast it was extremely fast paced and part of that is because of the fact that you're introduced to a world you've never seen before and everybody was sort of fascinated with the environment and one of the premises I had when I made the film was that I would not show the environment I would just assume that this was a natural world for everybody and everybody was familiar with everything in it so I wouldn't dwell on setting things up and you know trying to explain what a droid is or trying to explain that this is the garage where they keep their skyhopper and about oil baths or all the things that you would normally try to deal with. I just assumed that everybody knew about all this stuff and moved the film along as quickly as I could. As a result, when it first came out, people were just, they couldn't take it all in fast enough. Now when you look at the movie, it's not very fast at all. Everybody's familiar with these environments so that they don't spend a lot of time trying to see what is going on in the backgrounds. They just basically watch the story, and the story moves along at a rather leisurely pace by today's standard. Who is she? 
It's fascinating hearing him talk about it because when you read people who aren't really a new hope maniacs, one common complaint that comes up is the pace. And people say it's it moves kind of slow. Yeah, you can watch A New Hope now, having grown up on modern movies that were inspired by the speed of A New Hope and feel like, well, this movie's old-fashioned and slow, when at the time it wasn't old-fashioned and slow, and it was you know blowing people's mind with just how much information it was throwing at people. But even he acknowledges that if you're, once you're kind of familiar with all all the environments and backgrounds and things that are going on and you just focus on the story, the story is really kind of a, what does he say? It moves at a leisurely pace and it's, and it's the story is not really going at a million miles an hour. It's just everything around it. When I think about that, I always think of Jawas. If someone was watching star Wars for the first time and the Jawas come out and they shoot R2 and they put R2 in their giant ship and then you see the Jawas take the droids to the homestead and then you see a couple Jawas when they 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 go to the cantina and stuff roaming around but you'd really be like what was up with that whole part with the Jawas <laughs> it just it's something that happened just to happen because we've got to have Jawas and they got to ride around in this giant bus that's filled with other broken down droids it's really kind of crazy if someone's familiar in any way with Star Wars, that part would come up and be like, oh, Jawas. Yeah, okay. Cool. Where are they taking the droids? All right. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, hearing him talk about this and, and him being aware of the original movie and, you know, all the movies, of course, but, like, you can see where his mind was doing the prequels of, especially Phantom Menace, of, like, I can't just make A New Hope again because... Everybody knows this stuff and it's going to seem just slow and old fashioned. And he pushed Phantom Menace to the limits. And that's why there's the, in the beginning, the part where he's like, maybe I went too far <laughs> because he didn't want to just make the same movie again. And, and was aware of what, what the world being obsessed with star Wars kind of does to these movies. And once you understand all this stuff, you can just keep pushing it faster and faster and, people can keep up well and that leads us to our next wonderful thing and it's yeah it's an appearance from our color commentary carrie fisher where she's talking about the hologram scene in obi-wan's hut and she describes like the the first attempt to film the hologram and it's one of my favorite parts in this entire commentary where she says she looked like a little bald human the original they did without the hood up and when they saw it, I looked like a little bald human. So the last day of shooting on the first movie, I spent the whole day then, the morning into the afternoon, doing the whole thing over again. So it is in my head, General Kenobi, years ago you served my father in the Clone Wars. Now he begs you to help him struggle against the Empire. I regret that I'm unable to present my father's request. I had to do this for days and days, and they, so they reshot it, they, they sprayed gold on my hair. So this is, represents for me many days, okay, two days, maybe three days of shooting the hologram speech. The one you're carrying inside your rusty where is that footage? I want to see the bald, the bald human footage. It's so great hearing her again and telling the story that she's, She's told it many times of how she had to film this over and over and over again. But it's like Carrie isn't in this commentary like a whole lot, like we were saying. But when she does come on, it's like, oh, yeah, it's like we, we all miss her so much. Yeah, it explains why she she's always willing to uh, throw those lines out because they're burned into her soul from, would she say, two or three days of just shooting the hologram scene over and over again, which... You know, just previous to that with Dennis Muren talking about it, like it seems like it's not really an exaggeration because they had they kind of filmed that whole scene from every every angle they needed to make the hologram work as an effect. So, you know, it probably really was like, OK, let's do it all. OK, we're going to move the camera. OK, let's do it all again. OK, we're going to move the camera. Let's do it all again. <laughs> so. 
Well, and speaking of Leia, then kind of the next thing is George Lucas talking about Luke and Leia's stories. And this really kind of tripped me up this week thinking about it, like got me going down like again, like the black hole of thoughts, but maybe not quite as black as like with thinking about clones and stuff. But he's talking about how Luke and Leia's stories are told side by side throughout A New Hope. And let's let's listen to Lucas talk in the commentary, and then I'll talk about my, my black hole. One of the tricky things about telling a story this way is I'm intercutting between Princess Leia's story and Luke's story. And there's obviously more going on in Luke's story, and the emphasis is on his side, even though she is the key to the whole movie. It's her battle with Darth Vader and with the Empire that is actually what the story is all about. If Luke had stayed put on Tatooine, he wouldn't even know the Death Star existed. But I have to keep her story and her drama alive during this whole thing, even though she's in the middle of something and Luke is on the road to discovery. She's pretty much in control of things. She's already a political leader and a senator and a rebel and a you know, she's in the middle of her battle and her story. Her story is pretty simple. Get the plans, try to destroy the Death Star somehow. Where for Luke, it's a whole rite of passage coming into this big world that she already is a part of. Yeah, so I never really thought about in the 44 years that this movie has existed, yet kind of how Luke and Leia's stories really are kind of separate from each other in the first half of the movie. And if you're just watching it without knowing anything about these characters or anything, you might kind of be like for a while, like, okay, well, there's Luke on the farm and there's Leia on the Death Star. Like Leia being, you know, this this senator and Luke, this farm boy. And like, what, what did these two stories have in common? Like, we know the droids are looking for someone, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And it isn't until Luke and Leia come together, really, that Obi-Wan kind of exits the story. And it's almost like at that point, when Luke and Leia are together, that this new trilogy begins. And then it tripped me up thinking, yeah, if you watched episodes one, two, three, and then four, five, six, it's almost like with Obi-Wan leaving, it's like the end of the prequels. Vader and and Obi-Wan had their their little duel on the Death Star, and that would make you think of episode three. And then when the twins are reunited, who you saw being separated at the end of episode three, now this story begins. That's probably an obvious thing. (laughs) I guess that's kind of the the magic of this 44-year-old movie where there are still things that maybe are obvious that if you just sit and think about it for a little bit and how it relates to the other films, it's all just like, oh, George Lucas is a genius. <laughs> well, no, because I, I think I have the same reaction of like of how many times I've watched this movie and thought about this movie that it, it just that simple fact of it is like their story is parallel and then they converge and the center and then their stories are intertwined from then on. Like, I guess, yeah, I never really thought about it that way too. And then the whole idea of that once the twins are back together, yeah, Obi-Wan's mission is complete. His job is over. Of course, it makes sense that he can sacrifice himself to Vader now. And the fact that it works so well when one, two, and three weren't a real thing when they made this one, (laughs) but it, uh, there was enough seed or, or, inkling of of a bigger story in his head that all these years later it it all kind of still fit together is is just really cool because lucas even talks about it here in the commentary how you know he wrote a backstory and for all the talk about there was you know always going to be nine films at this point one two and three were just an outline he wrote and he never intended it to be a movie it was just an outline of who these characters were and what their relationships were And it was enough to make all the pieces fall back into place when he finally did go back to make one, two, and three. But it it is funny, just a little moment of pure honesty of him saying, you know, it was just an outline and now I need to make six hours of film out of this. (laughs) But in the end, it all worked. When I wrote the original screenplay, I'd written a backstory for 
all the characters, so I knew where they came from. And since I was starting this whole thing in episode four, I had to know kind of where all these characters came from and how they fit together and what the story was. So that was written up in a outline form with brief descriptions of who everybody was and where they came from. I never really intended it to be turned into a movie, but now it's the basis for the for episode one, two, and three, which tells you how Obi-Wan got here in the first place. It makes me think back to our episode 227, uh, the Phantom Origins of the prequels, where, yeah, we did talk about like how much of stuff from the prequels was taken from unused early drafts of especially this first movie and just kind of, well, what can I take? What can I fill in a little bit of this, a little bit of that? Okay, there's a movie, you know? <laughs> well, and that brings us to the one of our favorite topics, the cantina, right? Which is, are there new things to say about the cantina? I don't know if there's new things to say about the cantina, but I think the his thought processes behind it and the idea that, you know, this was a science fiction film, but instead of being Earth invaded by aliens, we're now in space with the aliens. But up to this point, we've only seen humans and robots. So Lucas asked the question that we're always asking, where are all the aliens? That's why this scene exists and everyone loves it. But he talks about just how shocking it was at the time. But again, like a lot of things in Star Wars at this, it's now that there's been more movies and it's been 40 years, it's kind of it's just a thing that is Star Wars and it kind of lost its its shock value in a way. It's just like, of course, that's just what Star Wars is. But it really was an important part of letting you know that this wasn't just Earth. This wasn't just your normal story. This movie has aliens. If you thought about it for a minute, you would say, well, where are all the aliens? And so I played on that by going to the cantina, and suddenly the movie opens up into a whole other kind of world, which exists, which is the world of aliens and strange creatures and all those sorts of factors, which at the time was a real shock. But now, you know, 30 years later, there's aliens in all kinds of movies all over the place, so it's not as rare an experience as it was when this movie came out. The shock value of this scene... It was one of the standout scenes when it was originally released. Now it's just another scene, but it's the plot moves along just the same because I didn't stop to make it outrageous. In the spirit of making it outrageous but not stopping to be too outrageous or overtly outrageous, just be outrageous naturally. <laughs> be outrageous casually. <laughs> He's talking about the shock of hyperspace on audiences in 77 and the audience reaction of seeing like the falcon go to hyperspace one of the problems with having a movie in outer space is that there's great distances and so one of the classic ways of dealing with that problem is to go into hyperspace or into some alternate reality where you can move through space at extremely high speed so you can get people from point A to point B without it taking forever. That's one of the basis for teleportation in Star Trek. It's really just a cinematic way of getting you up and down from the planets without having to jump in a shuttle every time you go. And uh, in this particular case, I wanted a visualization of that. What would it be? Well, you'd start going really, really fast. And if you start going really, really fast, then all the stars would just sort of streak by you. I mean, there's an obvious influence there from 2001, which is the Stargate sequence, which is things streaming by camera. But mostly it was just a device that I needed to get from point A to point B quickly. And at the time, it created quite a, a visual event, which I didn't even realize until I saw it with an audience. It was just, it was just going into hyperspace. We got so used to it, we never even thought of it as anything. And it was never designed really to be an entertainment event. It was really designed just, well, we got to get from here to that. So you do it, and no big deal. It was one of those things that was pretty surprising because I didn't think anybody would like, you know, like going into hyperspace. It's no big deal. But that had a very a spectacular reaction from the audiences at the time who hadn't experienced anything like that. You don't know how hard I found it. A lot of the things about these fantasy films, and Star Wars in particular, is that you create a world, you live in that world for three or four years. So the things that you take for granted... You don't even think about it anymore. And so when an audience sees it for the first time, they're like shocked. And you're completely familiar with everything. So it doesn't 
affect you the same way. And uh, the irony is now everybody's sort of so familiar with Star Wars that there isn't anything in here that's... You can't shock people anymore. The only way you can actually experience that is to watch it through the eyes of a, you know, six or seven-year-old who's never seen the movies before. And then you get that experience. But that experience was shared by everyone when the movie first came out. I mean, that's something... I think I never think of, too, because it's in literally everything. It's in every Star Wars everything. At some point, like, we got to go to hyperspace. And I like how Lucas is saying, like, now nothing in Star Wars is shocking. <laughs> but I, but this was also before Dr. Mandible. So <laughs> I, feel, I feel like the new era of Star Wars has reminded us how Star Wars can be shocking. But it is. I think that's, you know, it's part of the magic of movies too, to think about that you watch this thing and there's all these things that kind of blow your mind and the people making it have been watching those things that blow your mind over and over and over and over and over again for months or years. And the fact that the movies exist and they can still blow your mind because you didn't make it. It's just the, the disconnect is there, but it's just, it's just, a I don't know. It's just neat how that works and just i guess that's art in general that there's a, always going to be a different reaction to the person who made it versus the person who's just going in cold and i remember in interviews this being something they did on purpose was you never see a ship going into hyperspace from like the first person cockpit view in any of the prequels so that when you got to new hope that that was still special so then kind of after that lucas is kind of getting philosophical talking about what these movies are all about. And in the beginning, he throws you for a loop because he's like, it's all about high-tech versus romance. And it's like, what? One of the themes of the movie is high technology and romance. They're, they're romantic human. One of the human qualities is that romantic quality, that quality of honor and justice and everything that we equate as human in the way we focus and conduct our lives. In this particular case, I was looking for a symbol of sort of a, a more humane, honorable way of being a warrior as opposed to, you know, the mechanical, heartless, machine-like approach to killing and battle and war. One of the main influences here was the samurai ethic and King Arthur and the King Arthur ethic where you have a very strong set of ethical rules that you live by. The lightsaber became the symbol of that humane way of conducting your life even in the worst possible way which is to protect yourself by killing someone so next lucas kind of goes on a little rant almost about parsecs and i don't know this i could listen to him talk about parsecs all day long because for something that was so debated in in forums in zines in letters to magazines in locker rooms and back alleys for so long it's like it's almost like no one ever asked lucas because if you ask him he explains it perfectly and it all makes sense and it sounds like as far as he was concerned of course it was always about distance we're all silly for even being confused one of the concepts that is sort of incontroversial is the fact that when Han Solo talks about getting from point A to point B, he talks in terms of parsecs, which is distance rather than time. The premise being that in order to travel through hyperspace, you have to plot a course around all of the stuff, you know, all of the uh, planets and stars and everything. So the, the fastest way to two points is a straight line. And it's up to your navig computer and your navigation skills. That's what makes you go fast. And in particular case of you know, the Millennium Falcon, the Millennium Falcon has an extremely sophisticated navigation system. So it's, the reason it's the fastest ship in the galaxy is not because it actually has speed, but it has navigational skills that allows it to go from point A to point B faster than anybody else. And of course that was never explained and people got very confused by it. But if you follow the story, I think you would figure it out that speed is determined by distance. I mean, the, the speed that you get to a point is the distance you travel. If there's a lot in the way, and if you fly through something, it'll obviously destroy you. 
So the idea is you got to plot a course around everything and get there in the fastest route. I think you're right. For so many things, you get kind of ambiguous answers or like, you know, it's not important or, you know. But for this, it's like, no, here's a paragraph of exactly what I meant, exactly how it works. Why are you confused? <laughs> yeah, because I like he's just like, it's, it's simple, people. It's all right there. It's a nav computer. What? Nobody's paying attention. Everybody's looking at the funny things. That's not about spaceships. Well, yeah. And right after this very specific explanation, he kind of goes into not wanting to explain anything and how, again, he really wanted it to say episode four at the beginning. So it could explain that he didn't have to explain anything with this movie. One of the fun things for me about this movie was that I was making it episode four which is why I was so adamant about having that on the film. It's ironic that I was wanting it on the film to explain why I haven't explained anything. (laughs) And the studio was afraid to advertise it that way for fear that they would say, well, where are the other movies? And I don't know. They didn't know how to sell it. But the concept here was that all this stuff has happened, and you're never going to know about it. That was like two weeks ago on Saturday. If you didn't come to that one and your friends didn't see it, then you just wouldn't have any clue of what they're talking about. You know, we meet again, and, all, you know, well, that was in episode... That was in episode three. You know, and it never was intended that you'd ever know what that was. And it's 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 fun now for me, in a way, to be able to to do the first three stories so that you can you know some of the things that are going on here, but this was always intended to be a kind of... What in the world is going on in this movie? I don't understand, you know. But in one way, it all makes sense. You can sort of follow it. But in another way, most of the information is not there at all. And that's a particular case of the confrontation between Obi-Wan and Darth Vader. You know there's something, some relationship they have to each other. Because they talk about meeting again and the problems, and now I'm going to get you and all this kind of stuff. So there's some kind of old battle going on here that we don't know anything about. But it's it's also the constantly contradicting Lucas, too, where you know people's like, well, these he says he was never going to make 789, but here he says he was going to make 789. But it's like earlier in the commentary, he's like, I wanted to keep it weird and vague because that's the way I like it. And then later in the commentary, he's like, listen, I'm going to explain to you this parsecs thing. It's simple. Well, and there's also something awesome about the fact that it is almost like, you know, just for fun as a joke. It's like, well, this one's going to be episode four because we never saw what comes before or after. But then the fact that, when he had the chance to do what comes before and after that he did it <laughs> and he did all of it. And for the most part, it all worked. And like, that's, you know, not many people can back up a joke with, with the goods like that. I don't want anybody to know anything <laughs> except for parsecs. <laughs> Hearing him talk about that. I love it though, because it's, it, it puts my head yet yeah, in this weird alternate timeline where, Star Wars flopped and it would be forever known as the guy that made American graffiti space movie that flopped. People would probably, it'd probably have like this bizarre cult following and people be like wondering what happened next. And there'd be some comic book series of what happened next. And oh, that movie star Wars. Oh yeah. That's weird. It's cool. But I like him talking about like it, episode four and there was never going to be an episodes one two and three and it makes me think of too how the all the indiana jones movies begin with the ending of an adventure that we'll never see too that there's just something about the way he tells stories that he just loves that that and it goes back to the probably the serials too where maybe you know you'd you'd go see like an old saturday morning adventure serial and you didn't see the last two chapters and you're just walking into the middle of a story. And there is something awesome about that. It could have easily been Leonard part six, right. which I was all about Leonard part six. Cause I was like, <laughs> I, I know this game. It could have easily gone that direction. Well, speaking of make it outrageous, like we were talking about before up next, we've got the King of make it outrageous, Ben Burt walking us through the various changes that the Star Wars went through before the special editions even existed. Come on. The fact is the original Star Wars was mixed three different times because there were actually three different mixes that went out to the public. The first mix done was a two-channel stereo 
Dolby mix, which hadn't been done before. It was a new process. That mix was done first because actually making prints and testing them out and getting theaters to tune up their equipment required that that mix be done first. After that was done, then a six-track stereo mix was done for the 70-millimeter release of the film. And, of course, going back and mixing the film a second time, one makes changes, and you take things a little further. You've learned from the first mix of the movie, and you now go and make all your changes in the the next mix, which was the six-track. And that mix went out, and that was what people heard in the 70-millimeter releases of the film. Then there was a third mix done, which is a monaural mix, now, at the time, most theaters, the majority of theaters, were just monaural. They would play, you know, all the sound would play through one speaker behind the screen. And so it was important that we address the requirements of those theaters since they were in a majority. And so a third mix of the film was done, which was combining everything monaurally into, into one channel. And there were changes made in that mix because each time... We'd come back to it. George Lucas would listen to the film and look at it. He'd have a few new ideas, and some things would get changed and added in. So what the public heard in 1977, depending on what theater you went to see it in and hear it, you may have heard a different mix. And there are differences, some differences in voices, some differences in sound effects, either present or absent. Not really any music changes, but there were changes in the relationship of music and effects and dialogue. But Jason... I want the original version. <laughs> None of these changes. Give me the version that played in the theaters before that CG Jabba. Yeah. We, we went in depth on this in our, our episode 91, uh, the Star Wars mono mix, and then for the various changes in Empire in our episode 178. I love that Ben Burt also can just rattle it off the top of his head. And then I change it again, and this year, and then I we did this, and then there were the international versions, and I change it some more, and there is no original version of Star Wars. <laughs> At least audio-wise, original version is in space somewhere. Yeah, somewhere in space, all the audio versions are playing at the same time. If you get in just the right spot. If I ever go insane, it'll be just forever talking about the different Baru voices. <laughs> and that's how you can tell the mono mix and the Dolby mix. They, they each got different Baru voices. What does Baru tell you? Luke! <laughs> Luke! 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 Where are you going? Looks like I'm going nowhere. I have to go finish cleaning those droids. Oh, and he can't stay here forever. Most of his friends have gone. It, it means so, so much to we got to move on. George Lucas, he's talking about the tone of A New Hope, which again, it's I feel like the tone of Star Wars, it's something that just Star Wars has to have. Like even new episodes of The Bad Batch, they just have a certain tone to them. And it's weird. How in the world did that... <laughs> Like, how do you describe the tone of Star Wars? Well, George Lucas does it, kind of. It was always a challenge of how far I could go in the film before it, you know, would be silly. How much fun I could have without it destroying the credibility of the movie. And the approach I took on the film was pretty much similar to what I had done on American Graffiti, which is kind of realistic but humorous approach to the characters so that they could you know, have fun and be kind of lighthearted in rather intense situations and have that be amusing in itself without sort of winking at the camera and winking at the movie and saying this is all just a big joke. You know, by having the characters at least take it seriously. It's a thin line. James Bond had created a kind of film that's roughly in this vein but had much more self-consciousness about what it was doing. I was, we're sort of in the same genre but I wanted it to be a subtler, to set the tone that could create enough tension and be exciting for everybody, but still be fun enough to kind of enjoy as a movie, but then not have parents sort of say, I don't want to go see this movie. Say, this is too childish for me. So I was trying to walk that tight line that I had successfully walked in American Graffiti and was hoping I could do again here. He's saying it's funny, but not camp, not too childish. He has all of his actors taking it seriously. And I think that's the thing like in THX, like THX is absurd. And he admits in THX that a bunch of the actors are just speaking gobbledygook. And that's kind of the point. 
And then graffiti is very kind of lighthearted and conversational in tone. Star Wars really is these two very movies that shouldn't go together somehow working together. It's the peanut butter and jelly sandwich of George Lucas. It's like salted caramel. Hmm. All right. I can see that. Well, and then we get, I think, our last Carrie Fisher clip. It's a great little tribute to George Lucas and her admiration for him for being who he is and how back with this movie, he wasn't very verbal and, and this movie is very visual and that she just wouldn't want him any other way. When I read this script, I did not like science fiction movies. That is not what I liked. I read this script and really thought that he had done this extraordinary job of creating this other world. He had made characters and created a value system and all of this stuff that certainly was based in stuff that, you know, we know and and respond to. But he had done this thing and imagined this thing, especially visually, that I had never seen portrayed before in writing. And it was incredibly successful in terms of what I had read. And so I knew I would be really interested to see if he'd been able to carry it off. And I knew it was a very well-crafted script. And I knew that this guy was really talented. I mean, I'd seen American Graffiti and for whatever else, you know, he was somebody worth watching on that level. But this man is not, was at that time, not very verbal, but he has a very visual imagination. And he is able to sort of not be confined to what he knows or what he's been taught in this world that we, you know, he invents solar systems and he invents characters with character names that have nothing to do with, you know, anything that you could find in any dictionary or encyclopedia or anywhere. And so he is not inhibited by any of those things. So that's someone that has this kind of odd courageousness and inventiveness that is really extraordinary. I like her choice of words, his odd courageousness and creativeness. Like it reminds me too of like our, our interview episode we did a while back with the, the Carrie Fisher, George Lucas interview their relationship was just so great because she was just endlessly fascinated by the enigma of George Lucas. And he was just like, what's the big deal? I am just me. Take what you can get. And there's a part in the beginning with Carrie too, where she talks about how she first got the script for star Wars. And she, she says that it had to be read out loud. And actually what she's saying too, is that she read it with her friend, Miguel Ferrer, who, we know, of course, from RoboCop. <laughs> of course. But I just like that idea of like reading it and just being like, what is this movie? What the heck is this? You got to read it out loud because it's just insane. And then, yeah, probably meeting George, how she says he wasn't verbal during this period of time. It's wonderful. <laughs> but just for all these people, for. Harrison and Mark and Carrie and Billy D and Anthony and Peter and Kenny and David, even Dave Prowse and beyond. These movies were a huge part of their lives for the rest of their lives. And for some of them, it still continues to be. And it's always just nice hearing them talk about it and reflect on the the role that these movies have played in their lives. And it just always seems like that Carrie Fisher understands the weirdness of George Lucas more than any anyone else and that they do have that they had this kind of bond of appreciation of each other the it was it is almost the two of them is like the the peanut butter and chocolate or or oil and water or something where it's like they sh- they don't mix but they can't get enough of each other <laughs> and and you know just her brutal honesty and him being so guarded and, and quiet that just the two of them together and, and they just they brought out something in each other. And then, yeah, as we get to the end, the big George Lucas sums it all up. Sure seemed like he was just going to have that one success in his life, American Graffiti. Even we're at the end of watching 
Star Wars in a commentary in 2004 as he's almost finished with his second trilogy of films. And he's like, Arts Controlled Limited couldn't do what I wanted to do. <laughs> I was, you know, a struggling director. I'd just made my first successful film. I thought I'd sort of had my one success in life, which was American Graffiti. And so I was just going from movie to movie, and then by the time I finished this film, and I never expected this was going to go anywhere, and I figured that my struggle was going to be to try to get the other two films made somehow, borrow, beg, steal the money to you know, go and make a movie after this one was not that successful. The first three films, I couldn't even consider at this point in time. I mean, there was no way. This film was very carefully constructed around the technology I had available at the time. It's very, very controlled where we go. It's very limited in what we see. And decisions were made in the storytelling to say, well, I'll only go here and only see this. I mean, it'd be great to do all this other stuff, but I can't. But, you know, you think about it, it is like... What we were saying earlier with, you know, the, the, the difference between someone making a movie and someone watching a movie that, you know, we saw what they were able to do with what they had and we were blown away by it. But he saw in his head the movie that he imagined, which isn't the movie that we saw. So for him, it probably, you know, it, it was hard to not make the movie that he saw in his head and he got to do that with the with the prequels and I'm glad he did but I'm also glad that he tried to make the movie in his head and even though he had to cut back and be very controlled and and only do what little he could I'll, I'll be eternally grateful for that so overall Gabe what are your thoughts on I don't know, this commentary 44 years of a new hope Reflecting on it all, what what have we learned here today? I always feel like any of these George Lucas commentaries are really treasured gifts because for as much as Star Wars is this thing that's been around for 40 years and as huge as it is, I don't feel like we've really gotten a lot of just from George Lucas kind of his thoughts and feelings about these movies. And that I always wish we had more. So what little we do have is just endlessly fascinating to me to listen to him talk about these crazy movies. Yeah, and it, it's like Ben Burt says about the special effects that the the making of these films has become folklore in a way. And just like any good like folklore story, it's always just good to hear them. And it's the thing like the the stories of the making of these movies and his thoughts behind creating all of this, whether it's, you know, making it weird on purpose, having very specific ideas about parsecs or <laughs> even part in there where he's talking about how he decided that he had to have subtitles for Greedo and didn't want Greedo to just be speaking English, like very deliberate decisions that ended up making something so unique and so creative and so inspiring 44 years later in a movie like like we said with an still unbelievable amount of energy and electricity that is not seen in a lot of 44-year-old movies today. I mean, I always like hearing about kids that watch the original trilogy and especially New Hope and have no idea that it's a movie that's 44 years old. As much as a movie can be timeless, they're pretty darn close. Showing on the giant screen at the Dominion Tottenham Court Road. 
seats bookable. Star Wars. Certificate U. May the Force be with you. Star Space Station that you put together. Action figures each sold separately. Darth Vader's firing a laser cannon. It's been hit. He's after Luke. Take the elevator. Hurry. Now cross the light bridge. You won't escape me. Jump, Luke. Oh, no. The trash compactor. There's a trash monster. The wall's closing. Save. Kenner's new Star Wars Death Star Space Station. Action figures each sold separately. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. with Apple Podcast Reviews. If you're listening on something Apple, go over there, write something nice about Blast Points. We love reading them, and eventually we'll get to reading some of the reviews that you folks have left on an upcoming episode, and it helps the show in weird ways on Apple Charts. We don't really understand, but we love it. It's cool. And make sure you're checking out our website, BlastPointsPodcast.com, home of the handy search feature if you're looking for a back episode. And make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And if you're on Facebook, make sure you are in our Super Chill group. And on the website, too, we got the link for the brand new t-shirts with the green logo. They look good. It's the ultimate summer fashion accessory. If you want to support the show in a different way, we've got the Blast Points Army over there on Patreon, where we're doing a whole lot of Bad Batch over there. We had an episode come out over the weekend, last weekend, for episode three, the Bad Batch Replacements. It's heavy stuff. And every week, there is going to be more Bad Batch on Patreon, so check it out. But that about wraps up number... 267 here next week indie year is back something to look forward to special guest indie year again it's gonna be a whole lot of fun it's gonna be a roller coaster of an episode you'll want to park yourself someplace comfy and check it out so on that note folks thank you everyone for listening bye bye may the force be with you goodbye old friend may the force be with you Make it outrageous. May the force be with all of you.